In the first half of the 20th century, a phenomenon called hypnopedia, hypnopedia was an idea commonly portrayed in books, radio productions, films, and most famously in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Hypnopedia was a concept that was seriously explored and experimented upon at great length until in 1956, two scientists authoritatively described it, deemed it as impractical and probably impossible. Hypnopedia, in simple terms, is sleep learning. Hypnopedia is the now debunked idea that while you sleep, you can turn on a lecture or an audiobook or in relatable terms, a sermon maybe, and learn. Learn the material. You can learn chemistry. You can learn Spanish. You can learn theology while you sleep. Another way we refer to that is learning by osmosis. And this is something that we wish we could all do, maybe even right now. I hope not. Yet what we know learning by osmosis is impractical and probably impossible, this is oftentimes our mindset when we think about the local church. You see, we are committed to the church, by osmosis, we get plugged in by osmosis. We learn to what we think is love the church by osmosis. We grow by osmosis. If you're just here enough and you're comfortable enough and at all the right events, on time or 15 minutes late, and you're sitting in the right place, and you have the right kind of Bible without any sort of real effort or intention, you will be committed to the local church. You will grow. You will get plugged in all by osmosis. And to a certain extent, at a church like ours, this can be and is true. God greatly uses the people and the programs and the teaching of our church to minister to people who just happen to be here. It happens all the time. People who happen to just be here for that osmosis sort of experience, whether because their parents brought them or because COVID brought them because their church was closed or You heard Pastor John on the radio. People come to our church for the osmosis experience, and it works. God works through this environment that is our church as a catalyst for growth. Amen and amen to that. But this morning, as we finish our series on devotion, on the spiritual disciplines, I want to just pause and think a little bit about the fundamental idea of being devoted, of devotion. 
You see, devotion to any of these spiritual disciplines, whether it's prayer or God's word or this morning, the local church, by very definition, it is purposeful. It is intentional. It requires direction and effort. It doesn't just happen to you. It's not by osmosis. You make a conscious decision, a commitment in your heart to devote yourself to these spiritual disciplines. Devotion to God's church, then, is a commitment that begins in your heart. It's a humble heart that understands it needs the church. We need the benefits and blessings of the local church. We need the leaders of God's church in our lives. We need the accountability that comes with a part of being a, with being a part of the local church. We need all the means of grace that God supplies through the local church. We need to be a part of Christ's promise that he will build his church. We should be devoted to God's church because we need God's church. Devotion to God's church is understanding God's design for the local church and then humbly devoting ourselves to it. Devotion to God's church is understanding God's design for the church and then humbly devoting ourselves to it. This morning, we'll look at three different pictures or metaphors for the local church. And in these pictures, we'll see three reasons why we must be devoted to the church. Three reasons why we must be devoted to the church. First, we must be devoted to the church because we love Jesus. Because we love Jesus. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, a familiar passage. We'll see the first picture, and that is the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Paul writes there, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In this passage, we see a parallel that marriage between husband and wife is patterned after the relationship between Christ and the church. You've all been there. Saturday, early afternoon, in the chapel. 
or in a vineyard, or in the country club, or in the park. Or in this past year, somebody's dusty old backyard. You've heard this passage read, preached, referred to over and over and over at weddings, and rightly so. It's straightforward instruction to the role and responsibility that husband and wife have to each other for the benefit of each other. Namely, that the husband is to lead and to love and to serve his wife and the wife is to submit to, to love and to look to be led by her husband. This is such an important passage, but not only for marriage. It's important for our understanding of the local church. And Paul's instruction here for husbands and wives, and specifically in his instruction to husbands, we see something that I think we pass over a little bit too quickly. We see here in this glorious passage the ultimate example of love. It's a demonstration of love par excellence. The love of Jesus for you, me. The love of Jesus for his church. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He loved us and gave himself up in death, even death on a cross. You see, a husband must love and devote himself to his wife, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do them part. And we admire that. We adore that. And we see the serious commitment in that. But Paul is saying here that Jesus' love for the church, for us believers corporate, goes far beyond any love we can humanly know, even that of love between man and wife. Love that went to the cross of Calvary and paid the atonement for our sin and is therefore the example for even marital love. Christ's love for the church is the ultimate example. It's the perfect pattern. It's the paradigm and the pinnacle of love. It's love perfected. And so if you are someone who would say, yes, Christ loved me and gave himself up for me, then you are inherently part of the church the bride of Christ. If you are a Christian, you are a part of his bride, the church. And because we all love Jesus in return for the great salvation that we sang about this morning and we know that we have, that we can stand in, we want and we need all of the benefits and blessings of this kind of intimate communion with our Savior. And this relationship, as we see in this passage, is corporate. It's not just between you and Jesus. It's between Jesus and his bride, the church. 
all those who have been loved by Jesus and therefore love him. And so therefore in community, we respond like the bride should. We respond as Paul says in verse 22 and again in verse 24, look there. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ. We submit to Christ, the head of the church, our Savior. We obey his commandments. We love as he loved. We grow in his likeness. And in verse 26, we see how that happens. We see that Christ's love is not only a sacrificial love that brings us to himself. We see that Christ's love is a sanctifying love. Christ is sanctifying his church. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ is making his church holy, setting her apart from the world for himself, verse 27 says. He is, by the washing of the water of the word, doing this mighty work in sanctifying his bride. In every season, in every trial, in every instance, Jesus is sanctifying his bride that we might be holy and without blemish. You see, as the bride of Christ, we face opposition and uncertainty in certain seasons, but the Lord is sanctifying us. We have this confidence as his bride. He's doing this in ways unimaginable and unmeasurable. Spurgeon talks about this confidence that we can have this way. He says this, when you hear ill reports, cruel speeches, threats, taunts, and the like, believe that the Lord is among his people and is working gloriously. At a church like ours, I'm afraid that sometimes we think that Christ's work of sanctifying us is over, that it's done. I think sometimes as a church, we think we're already perfect. We have so much pride in our excellence in everything. And I admit, we are excellent in a lot of things. But I think we have this air of elitism about us sometimes, and we're not aware of it. Nobody can do it quite like we do. We have the best church in the world, what other church has space shuttles for their VBS and has a welcome center that looks like the Marriott? We have world-class everything. At least we say so. And I think the only thing we do wrong is we clap. Maybe you're not that type. Maybe you're the type to think that our church isn't Perfect. You're the only perfect one, in fact. You see others around you and you see the decisions that leaders make, and you, by your own righteous standard, you expect better. 
you think the church should do this or that. The entire church is failing constantly according to your standards. You're a critic. You're a church pessimist. You're a perfectionist of the worst variety. Your expectation of how our church should be is insatiable and it's fueling your discontentment and you're going to move to Texas or Florida tomorrow. The church as the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5 is being sanctified. Ephesians 5 addresses both of these kinds of mentalities. Jesus, the one who loved the church and gave himself up for her, is sanctifying his church. And we, the church, are a work in progress, a community of restored image bearers, a hospital for sinners who in the end, as his bride, Jesus will present to himself in Splendor. And so our posture ought not to be self-congratulating pride, nor a self-righteous expectation over other people, but that of humble devotion to being a part and just a small part of the work that Christ is doing in his church. And so because we love Jesus and because we need his sacrifice and we need his sanctifying power in our lives, we should humbly devote ourselves to being a part of his bride whom he loved and gave himself up for. Second reason why we must be devoted to the church is because we hold fast to the truth. We hold fast to the truth. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll see here the church as a pillar and support of the truth. 1 Timothy 3, look at verse 14. Paul writes there to the church in Ephesus via Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Here we get a two for one. Paul first describes the church as the household of God, the family of God. And this whole letter to Timothy has been full of instruction for the household of God. Uh, you know First Timothy, against false teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Instruction to the household of God in the face of conflict. Instruction to the household of God for the qualifications of its leaders, elders and deacons. Uh, 
instruction to the household of God and how to care for and shepherd its various members uh, on in chapter 5. And here in chapter 3, Paul takes a little bit of a break, a pause, and he states his purpose for the letter. If I can't come to you like I'm planning to, these are instructions. This whole letter is a set of instructions for the household of God. Here are things to live by as the family of God. And in the middle of that, Paul switches the metaphor from that of household or family And he describes the church as the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Your Bible may say a pillar and support. The picture here is the church is a pillar, a huge, strong, weight-bearing column that supports everything in this great building above it and around it. And it upholds the overall structure and integrity of this building, this temple of God, so to speak. And then the other word, it is a support. The word literally meaning something more like foundation than it means something like buttress. We think medieval flying buttress, but this word is foundation. It's the solid material laid down for the building to begin with. And so the church provides foundational support and strength for God's truth, for his word, for his wisdom. It's holding God's truth upward and outward for all to see. The church upholds and sustains and supports God's truth. Now, this image would have been familiar to the Ephesian believers. You see the temple of Artemis or the goddess Diana in other culture was the most magnificent building in their city. An architectural masterpiece for its time. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Around this great temple were 127 great pillars, gigantic columns, ornate, gilded with gold and silver made of marble that supported this great temple structure. The strength of each of these 127 pillars, a testament to the supposed power of the goddess Artemis, her wisdom, her protective power in fertility, and her skill in hunting. Here in Paul's picture, unlike the temple columns of a lifeless, powerless goddess like Artemis whose temple was destroyed and rebuilt several times throughout the centuries. The church is a strong, singular column of foundational support for the truth of the living and eternal God. A rock-solid unwavering pillar that is a testament to who he 
is and all that he has done for his people. By the preaching of the word and the witness of its people, the church in the strength and the power of this living God, we hold forth his truth. When we think of the devastating building collapse this past week in Miami, and all of the lives lost and the families broken, broken because of uh, a travesty like that, we are greatly sobered. Now, experts are saying this weekend that it happened probably because of some sort of foundation failure over the course of time, even since the 90s. And we think of with great gravity because of that just happening, the importance of a solid foundation. And so while at first glance, this sort of architectural analogy may not exude profundity to you at first, this makes us think of how important a foundation is. You see, the implication here is we see connect those ideas is that the very truth of God's word and all that is contained in it is reliant on the foundation that is the church. You see, from the truth that is the, the creation of this world by an almighty God, to the truth of the history of God's kindness toward mankind, to the truth of redemption of God's people Israel, to the truth about Jesus and his saving work, All of this, God's truth would risk suffering collapse were it not for God's design for the church as the pillar and support of God's truth. In a lost and confused world so very hostile to the truth, the church is the institution that God has designed to hold fast the word of life. Calvin says it this way, it is No ordinary dignity that is ascribed to the church when it is called the pillar and ground of the truth. He says this, for what higher terms could he have used to describe it? This is how God designed his church and this is how God utilizes it. The church is God's chosen instrument to hold forth his truth in the world. We as God's people are a pillar in support of the truth. We are a bastion of truth in a confused world. We're a beacon of light in darkness. We proclaim and we live out God's truth. And so when you hear or when you sing or when you proclaim truth and you hear it and you rehearse it, and you read about it in the context of the church, in different styles, and by different leaders, in varying levels of skill and quality, according to your preference and not according to your preference. See the truth for what it is. Hear truth in every sermon. Look for something to hang your hat on in every song. It's what we're here for. It's why we gather. 
It's to know and to love and to put on display God's truth. And so have the humility to devote yourself to appreciating the truth. See the pillar working. Love the truth and give glory to God. When we understand that the church is the pillar and support of the truth, it should drive us to a humble recognition that God has used and will use the church to save and sanctify his people by his truth. And our response should be humble devotion to the church and its labor for the truth. We should commit to acts of service that the truth would go forth. We should give to the work of the church in proclaiming truth. We should pray for the church's efforts, even when it doesn't have anything to do with you. And We should welcome in the voice of the church in truth into our lives. We should honor and respect our leaders and seek to imitate their way of life. We should desire the accountability of the truth in our lives, in membership, in the one another's, in being connected to each other. And we should listen to and rehearse and grow in our sensitivity to the truth of God. As those who believe God's truth, we must humbly devote ourselves to the church in light of its call to uphold the truth as the pillar and the support of the truth. So we must humbly devote ourselves to the church because first, we love Jesus. Secondly, we've seen we hold fast to the truth. And thirdly, and lastly, we see we need to humbly devote ourselves to the church because we need one another. We need one another. The third and final picture of the church is that of the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. We could easily turn to 1 Corinthians 12 and see a much more vivid picture of this, but Romans 12 helps to see it more succinctly. Romans 12, just verses 4 and 5. Paul again writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. The picture here is that as the church, we are a living, breathing human body. Shout out to the Phi majors over in the UCLA section. We are a body, the body of Christ. And Jesus is the head of that body who gives direction to the body. And we are all parts of that body. In this passage, Paul points out both the unity and the diversity of the body of Christ. 
And here Paul demonstrates two things very clearly. First, that while there are many different parts, many different members, there is one body. There is one body. Christ is the head. And each of us, as a part of the church, we are all members of that same one body. There is built-in unity here. As 1 Corinthians 12 would say, we can't say, because I'm not a hand or an eye, I don't belong to the body. We can't say, as 1 Corinthians 12 says to the other parts, I have no need of you. We are all part of the same body. One body. The body of Christ. And the other thing that Paul demonstrates is that he demonstrates that in the diversity of the body, there are inherent differences. There are distinctions of function within the various members. And again, 1 Corinthians 12 is maybe a little more explicit that there are different functions. And some functions, some parts, get more honor than others. But Christ brings greater honor to those who seem less honorable. The point is, in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, that is that God has designed the body so that the different parts function together to accomplish what the head wants. One body working in different, different functions to accomplish the goal of the head of the body of Christ, and that's Christ himself. And so we function together in unity to accomplish what our head, Jesus, wants. These sorts of things would not be possible if all the parts were the same, or if one part decided it didn't want to be part of the body anymore. God's design emphasizes and even encourages diversity and distinction in gifts. Romans 12 continues on and describes differences in God's gifting amongst the church. He grows in his church, everyone in different ways and for unique kingdom purposes. And these purposes are greater than ourselves. So that the body of Christ, composed of imperfect people, would function and promote unity and extend care for its members in the way that it should. In this picture of the church as the body of Christ, we must devote ourselves to the church because we need one another in the body. As only each of us, only one part of the body, we need all of the other parts. We can't grow, we can't serve, we can't function on our own. This sort of passage, by its very picture, by analogy, brings us out of our individualistic, consumeristic mentality that we so often have when we think about the church. We think church is for me this morning. Church is for my benefit. Church is for my growth. 
But this picture of the body of Christ inherently brings us to realize that we need all of the other parts. It drives us toward the one another's in the New Testament. Just listen to these one another's. Love one another. Honor one another. Bear with one another in love. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Show hospitality toward one another without grumbling. Forgive one another. Through love, serve one another. Submit to one another. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. We ought to be devoted to one another in the church because we need one another. This picture of the body of Christ also strips away our self-righteous expectations we might have with one another. This kind of analogy challenges our ideas about what we think growth and service should look like in other people's lives. It confronts our presupposition that there is one best way to do church. There's one way to do Grace Church, there's one way to grow and to serve in Grace on Campus or in CSUN GOC or at at USC. There's only one way to do it. Let me show you. And of course, that's your way. Well, this passage confronts that sort of presupposition. You see, growth and service in the church can't and shouldn't look the same for every single person. For every member, for every part of the body of Christ, it shouldn't look the same. We aren't all supposed to go to seminary. It's not a requirement for godliness. We shouldn't be all on your Bible reading plan because you think it's the best. We don't all need to serve in one specific ministry like you do, or in the same ways, or in the same capacities, or for the same number of hours. We don't all need to do communion cleanup. Or serve an adventure club, all the same. We aren't all supposed to eventually be small group leaders or staffers at the Bible study we're at right now. We're all supposed to, though, grow and serve and be devoted to one another in the way that God has designed in your life. Uniquely in his ways, and in his time. And so have patience with that for yourself, but for others around you as well. God has gifted and burdened and wired each person with unique abilities and desires and ceilings. And as for growth, God gives some parts of the body spiritual growth spurts that take only a week. That for another person, for the same amount of growth, takes years. Our view of ourselves and of others in the body of Christ ought to reflect patience and sensitivity and care and a desire for unity. We should have a firm confidence that God is indeed at work in our lives, 
but just as much in other people's lives as well. It shouldn't be hard to see how God is using someone for his glory. It shouldn't be hard to see how he how he's growing others around us, how he's maturing them, how he's mobilizing them for kingdom progress. You see, when we understand and submit ourselves to God's design of the body of Christ, we start to see one another through grace-filled eyes. As fellow partakers in grace who are simply different parts of Christ's body, we'll start to expect less of each other according to our own standard. And we'll expect more of what God will do in another's life, in his time, and in his way. The term hakikomori is a Japanese phenomenon. It's a social phenomenon, and the term refers to both the people and the phenomenon itself. It's a social idea that, uh, that people it, it isolate themselves in extreme ways. It's the construct now of a pattern of total withdrawal from society. These people, hikikomori, are social recluses. They keep to themselves in extreme ways. The Japanese Ministry of Health defines the phenomenon this way. The state of avoiding social engagement, such as education, employment, and friendships, with generally persistent withdrawal into one's residence for at least six months as a result of Various factors. Hikikomori, the phenomenon, affects an approximate one million people in Japan. And some scientists and social scientists estimate that number is growing and is perhaps already underestimated. Now many of you, by your own standards, are fastidiously committed to our church. You're not a hikikomori. You are, after the 15 months that we've gone through, you're here. And you've been here. You're not, even after quarantine, a hikikomori. In fact, it's summer in a college ministry in Los Angeles, and you're here. You're committed to the church. You're present You're a beige card filler-outer. By all outward signs, you get it. You've never gotten an awkward call from the membership department. You show up on time with your NASB in your hands and your LSB in your back pocket. And you know all the obscure hymns no one else knows. Well, unless we are careful to devote ourselves to the church and to recognize the work that God is doing in our midst and in others around us, we may become church-attending, note-taking, far-lot-parking, 
Hikikomori, whose isolation isn't for physical walls, but the walls we put up in our hearts toward other people. We become isolated in extreme ways, even while here. And so Crossroads this morning, I challenge you, we should be humbly devoted to God's church, to one another, because we love Jesus. We hold fast to the truth, but because we need one another. We need to understand God's design for the church is that we together are the bride of Christ. We together are the, bill, are the pillar and support of the truth. We together are the body of Christ. Let us devote ourselves to the church because by doing so, we devote ourselves to Jesus, to the truth, and to one another. So whether you've been here for 30 minutes or for 30 years, this morning has been a reminder from God's word that devotion to the church isn't just a collection of outward church commitment credentials that we're checking. It's at the core what you, it's not at the core what you do to be devoted, but instead a commitment we first make in our hearts. Crossroads, we must be devoted to the church because it is God's beautiful and glorious and perfect design for his people. That we would love the head of the church, Jesus. That we would grow in and learn the truth. And that we would love and serve and be devoted to one another. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your church that we can be a part a small part of what you, oh God, are doing. And so we see in your word these three pictures and we respond in humble gratitude and we seek to devote ourselves to you, builder of the church, and to one another. We're so grateful for your design. Lord, work in our lives even now. In Jesus' name, amen.